If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 91. We're in a series in the Psalms um, called uh, Songs for Life. The Psalms are not just songs, but they are poetic expressions, um, sometimes songs, sometimes liturgies, sometimes poems, sometimes uh, uh, prayers. Uh, and so these kind of all overlap, uh, but I think that they contain what we need for the Christian life. We need what's in the Psalms for the Christian life. It's, it's the language of the church. It's the language of our prayers. It's where we learn how to speak to God and about God in the Psalms. And so uh, we've been walking through uh, different things, uh, talking about different uh, places. We, uh, some years ago, uh, I was listening to this podcast. Uh, I think it was This American Life. Some years ago, but I, I remember it vividly because I was just stunned by this story. Uh, and the story was uh, that this, this guy um, had just watched Gorillas in the Mist which, if you don't know what that is, it's a documentary about uh, these silverbacks. And they went and lived, Jane Goodall, I believe her name, went and lived with the silverbacks and, and, and studied their every movement, just documented it. It was unbelievable. And the guy watches this documentary, and he says when he sees it, we know more about the behavior of these gorillas than we do of our own children. And so what he did is he set up an experiment. And so what he did is he put cameras all around this small town in the Northeast. And he put these cameras everywhere. And what he did is he documented the travels of the children to see how they moved about the neighborhood. And what they found is, starting at about age six or seven, uh, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were pretty, this is not far. Starting about age six or seven, the kids would travel, and this is in the 70s, would travel up to four miles away from their house, including the rock quarry where they would go swimming. The kids just naturally moved on average that kind of distance. In the 90s, the end of the 90s, he decided to go back and study the same town again. He goes back and he studies the town again. He does the exact same, he passes it, this time he passes out um, surveys. And here's what he found out about the travel of the the kids in the exact same town. The average travel distance was their own backyard. They didn't go anywhere. And so he goes around and begins to survey, like, what has changed? And everybody basically said, said the same thing. The world's just so dangerous now. Here's the interesting thing. By every single statistic of safety that could be found, it was a much safer place. It was a much safer world in the 90s than it was in the 70s. But this idea and this perception, this constant bombardment, it it drives fear into all of us. I, I feel that. We are human beings, frail, so we often live in fear. We live in fear of all kinds of things. I mean, yes, it's... By every, every measure, so much safer now than it used to be. I mean, I've never like, stayed up all night wondering if Pelham is going to invade. You know what I mean? Like, you don't wonder if the next town is going to take over. Uh, like, that used to be a thing, and we don't worry about that anymore. Um, so it's, it's a safer place, but it's still a world that's full of crime, right? Shootings, mass shootings, these things happen. Sickness and death. Like, we live in a, a dangerous world, and we're fragile. Accidents. Right? I remember being absolutely just horrified and frozen by the story that I heard about this family that was at the zoo. I believe it was outside of New York. They were at the zoo, and a tree branch fell and killed two of them. They're standing there enjoying the day, and a tree branch fell and killed them. Like, I was, like my heart tightened, my chest tightened, I couldn't sleep at night thinking about that. That we live in a world where that kind of thing can happen. Not only that, loss of what we love, that song that we just sang, uh, that's a, a, a line from Augustine's Confessions. Uh, he wrote that, uh, my heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Uh, and the opening 
It's amazing. Another place in the Confessions, Augustine said this. He says, I lived in misery. Like every man whose soul is tethered by the love of things that cannot last and then is agonized to lose them. He lived his life tethering his soul to things that would not last and living in constant fear of losing them. So it's, it, we live that way because we are fragile and we live in this place that feels so temporary to us. And we, we, we reach out for all kinds of worldly solutions to manage those things, uh, political solutions, personal solutions, uh, all kinds of things to manage these fears. And, and, and that's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's bad, but the Bible also speaks to this. The Psalms speak to this. I, I want to read to you from Psalm 91. It says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You'll not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is a psalm about safety. This is a psalm about protection, where it comes from and how that we lay hold of it. It's an anonymous psalm, possibly Moses. It has some similarities to some things that Moses has written. Uh, But it is... about a time of exposure, a time of fragility when evil is attacking. There's three voices in the psalm. It opens up with this, the psalmist just writing and saying, this is who I am. And then, and then he begins to talk to someone else, right? The, the third person. And at the end, those last three verses, 14, 15, or 16, God enters. It's an oracle of God. God speaks at the end of this. So there's three different voices that happen in this. Let's just walk through it real quick. Here's what it says. Uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. There's, in his first two verses where the psalmist is kind of speaking and beginning, uh, he uses four images for God. He is a shelter. He is a shadow that we can hide in. He is a refuge and he is a fortress. He uses four names for God in this. Most High. He is the Almighty. He is Yahweh and he is my God. That personal thing. This is who he is, a God in whom we hide, a God who protects those who trust in him. And then there's the encouragement in verses three and four for people to listen to him, 
It says three and four, deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from deadly pestilence. From the traps and the threats of the enemies, God will protect you. He will guard and watch. And then verse four, one of my favorite images, most vivid image in here, is the image of a mama bird uh, that um, puts her wings over her young to protect and guard from danger and from rain and from sun. This image of protection, but also not just the soft embrace of a mother bird, but also that is combined with the armor. He will, give, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So his protection like a wing is combined with this idea of armor as well. And it says, day and night, five and six, uh, it goes back and forth. Uh, you will not fear the terror at night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Things that attack in the night, or things that come by the day, nor the pestilence, the disease that comes in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The things that come unexpectedly, and the things that haunt you, like tree branches that fall and wrecks that come out of nowhere. God will guard and protect his people. It says here that he'll send his angels to protect you, to guard you. So you don't even bash your foot against a rock. It also says that not only is he going to protect you, but you're going to be victorious. That you're going to tread on the lion and the adder. These these vivid images, these metaphors for powerful, powerful forces against us. And then in 14 through 16, the oracle, God says, I'm going to bring salvation. Because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. How amazing. How beautiful that this is who our God is and what he's like. It's unbelievable. The promises of protection are stunning. But I, you see the problem, right? I have, I have questions. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be saying at first reading that if you trust God, bad things won't happen to you. You won't even stub your toe. So, I have questions. How how am I supposed to understand this? Because the Bible actually says that suffering happens. The Bible isn't shy about claiming this. I mean, how can it be that If we have faith, how can this be saying that if you have faith, you won't suffer? I mean, that's how the devil used this verse, right? This verse, the devil quotes this passage from from this psalm in Matthew 4. Jesus is being tempted, and the devil comes to him, and he says this. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written that he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil says, hey, throw yourself off the top of this. Doesn't it say that if you have enough faith that God will save you? So, there's a couple ways that we could think about this, right? Because the Bible all over says that you will suffer, right? Let me, let me skip 
uh, all the examples that I could give you of people that I know <laughs> that follow Jesus, that love Jesus, that have suffered. Let me, let me skip those and just go to the best example. Jesus, yeah? Like, Jesus was very obedient, and he suffered and died on a cross. Not just died on the cross, but he was tortured and, and tormented. He's like, just, he suffered. He wept. A man of sorrows is how he's described. Not only that, the book right before Psalm in the Bible is this really, really amazing piece of wisdom literature called Job that basically deals with, yeah, of course you'll suffer. So how, what, is, what is happening in this Psalm? The Bible says that suffering will happen. Even the New Testament kind of affirms that. In, in Romans 8, uh, Paul's writing and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? Like he points to these things that will happen, that, that could possibly happen to Christians. I mean, Jesus himself in Luke 9 said that if anyone's going to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I mean, even Psalm 91 at the end, it says this, when, G, when God enters the, the oracle from God at the end, it says this, hold fast to me, I will deliver him, I will protect him. When he calls to me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble. Even at the end of the psalm, it says there's going to be trouble, but don't worry, I'll be with you in it. So it can't be read, I don't think. How am I supposed to understand this? I, I guess I could, we could, one of the ways that you could look at this and say, these guys were dummies, but the Bible is too rich and brilliant for that to be the case. Or these were just religious zealots peddling snake oil, but the Bible just dives too deep into what it's like to be a human. That just can't be the situation. We could just say that he's using hyperbolic language, right? You know, like you could read this psalm and be like, what he's getting at is, you know, just let go and, and, and let God, right? But you know what? I'm not, we, no. Right? We're not going to reduce the Psalms to a meme. That's ridiculous. No, it's much deeper than that. Something else has to be going on. We could say that this only applies to a king like David. We could say that, well, this is usually how it goes, but not always. But those, uh, for the most part, for me, are unsatisfying <laughs> explanations for what's happening here. Uh, because this, because the, double, the, because the New Testament doubles down on this kind of talk, right? So in Romans 8, 28, right after Paul talks about this pestilence and stuff, he says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then Jesus says this in Luke 21, not a hair of your head will perish. What is happening? I think that what's happening is that Psalm 91 and other passages in Scripture, they're they're pushing us to see a a bigger, truer world. So the the way forward is this. When we struggle with, when you struggle with translation, when you read something in the Bible, go, well, this just really doesn't make sense with the rest of the Bible. Uh, I can either just ignore it and move on, which was honestly my temptation when I came to this song. I was like, let's just skip that. Uh, Or we can use the rest of Scripture. How does it fit into the narrative of what God is doing? And use that story to see if it informs us what's happening in this single passage. Put the psalm in the context of the whole Bible. Read it alongside of everything else that's going on in the story. And here's what's happening in the rest of the story. 
it seems to me that the story of the Bible begins with God dwelling with humans in the garden, and it ends with humans dwelling with God in the new Jerusalem, the new city come down from heaven. It's humans being with God and created to be with God, and then everything in between those two things is God doing something to bring humans and him to himself so that relationship can exist again. Like That's the story of the Bible, what God is doing to bring us back to where we can live with him again, the source of life, the source of joy, the source of all that is good. That's the story of what's going on in the Bible, how God is working that out and why he has to do it. And it seems that the Bible kind of thinks that there's, I'm going to use this word, uh, two realms. Is that okay? Two realms. There's the earthly realm that you're born into, the worldly realm, right? You're born into this. But then there's also, uh, you're part of the created order, and we live most of our lives in, in that earthly realm, but we also seem to, to interact according to scripture with the heavenly realm. Right? We're made to be in that relationship with God. We're born into the world, uh, into the earthly realm, cut off from the heavenly realm because of the corruption and sin in our hearts and in our lives and in the relationships and the damage it causes. So we're, we come into the world cut off from that heavenly realm, but we were designed. So in the very beginning, you see Adam and Eve, what are they doing? They, they walk in the garden with God side by side. They're dwelling. There's this interaction. And then as you move through the story of Scripture, that theme comes up over and over and over again. Let me give you just a few examples. When, when they arrive at Sinai, God pulls his people out of Egypt and they come to this mountain and God comes down in some kind of presence on top of the mountain and there's this smoke and there's this fire on top of the mountain and Moses goes up into the mount, up into the flames to be there with God and come back down and deliver to the people his message, to intercede for them and to deliver a message and there's this interaction on the mountain, there's some place where, where God and the heavenly realm and the earthly realm somehow have come to rest and Moses is allowed to go up into it. Happens again in the tabernacle. All these stories about, hey, he gives all these instructions. Hey, here's how we're going to live together. You build me this big, beautiful tabernacle, and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to dwell in the midst of the people in the middle, and then once a year, a priest, the high priest, will come in and make atonement, and you are entering into the space, the, the, the God people space, the, the whatever film is between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, there's moments when it's broken down and someone is allowed to pass through just for a moment under the exact right circumstances. On top of Sinai, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and then ultimately in Jesus. The interaction, the, the meeting of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm in a person. That, that veil or whatever it is that separates the two is broken and we're actually allowed somehow to have someone go into that to occupy both. Now this heavenly realm that exists outside of time and space that we that are promised one day will invade. Jesus talks about like this. They ask him to how to pray and he says this. Uh, our, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The invasion of the heavenly kingdom, of the heavenly realm into the earthly realm. That's what he longs for. That's what we see in Revelations. It's what we had in Genesis, and that's what we get glimpses of all along the way. What I'm saying is this. It seems like the biblical story is pushing 
us to understand our life as part of something much bigger than we experience on a daily basis. Much larger. And the biblical witness affirms that all these longings and desires we have uh, for a larger life come from this because we were made for this. We were made to interact in this way. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead to the heavenly realm, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Paul says that right now, in some way, if you were a follower of God, if you were his by faith in Jesus Christ, in some real way, you are present in the heavenly places because you are so tied up with Jesus that you're there where he is. Right now. That's part of our existence. let's, Let's do it again. Luke 21. Here's what Jesus says. They said to him, Nathaniel will rise against, uh, sorry, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He's talking to his disciples. There will be great earthquakes, various places, famines, and pestilences. There will be terrors, great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues, to prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then Jesus says this, but not a hair of your head will perish. I'm sorry, say what? You just said we're going to be put to death, tortured, betrayed by friends and family, and not a hair of our head will be perished. He seems to almost see our existence as way bigger than we do, way longer than we do, participating in something much grander than we do, a bigger, truer world. You're never going to believe this. There's this guy who helped me with this. His name is C.S. Lewis. I love that he helps me with the imaginative part. It's not that he was smart, that he was an excellent writer. I'm going to share two things where C.S. Lewis helped me understand this, helped me vision this better. The first one is from a book called The Great Divorce. Let me set the scene for you. It is an imaginary bus ride from hell or purgatory into heaven. People who are in purgatory, this is a story, it's a fiction story, they're in a bus, and they're like, hey, why don't you come see what heaven's like? And they take them into heaven in a bus. Here is the description on arriving. Lewis says, oh, so at first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the bus. Though beginning, some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were in fact ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at all as you do with dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had known had been perhaps. It was the light, the grass, 
the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy, which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort and I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass, not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? Golly, thought I, I'm in for it this time. The picture that he paints of heaven is so much, is as a place that is so much more real than this. The kingdom of heaven invades in such a way that what we have here, if we could compare it to that, we would be able to see straight through our hands. It's so real that the blades of grass in heaven would not bend under our weight. That's how real heaven is. I gotta do it again. Okay, so it's supposedly for kids, but I, every year, like I read them over, I think, all seven of them, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm gonna tell you the end of the last book. It's okay, it's okay if you haven't read them. First of all, what are you doing? Uh, secondly, uh, you go, go read them. Uh, but secondly, it's not, gonna, it's, not gonna enjoy, it's not gonna blow it for you. Chronicles of Narnia are the story, primarily, of this young British family, uh, these children, who arrive in this land called Narnia. They, they, they get there through a wardrobe, uh, a back, at the back of a wardrobe. They're, they're hiding and they, and they go through uh, and they end up in this, this land of Narnia that's under a spell. The white witches place it under a spell. Uh, it's a, a, always winter but never Christmas. What a, what a vivid image. Uh, anyway, so that's in the, like, the, the first book published, not the first one chronologically, it doesn't matter. And then you get to the, the seventh book, it's called The Last Battle. And in The Last Battle, there's a, there's a big battle. And uh, these children find themselves in another place. They find themselves in a, in, a, in a new kingdom, a different place than they'd been before. Here are some of my favorite quotes. Lucy, in the story from the beginning, says this. She's looking around at the landscape and she's looking at the mountains. She says, yet they're not like said Lucy. They're, they're different. They, they have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remember, and they're more, more, I, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or, or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here just as in our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. Aslan being the Christ figure in this. Aslan's real, uh, Aslan's real world. You do not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different. As different as the real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. Then another of the characters in their group says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've always been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. 
The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like this a little bit. Come further up and come further in. Isn't it wonderful, said Lucy? Have you noticed one can't feel afraid even if one wants to? Try it. And then this is the end. Aslan shows up at the end and he explains this. He explains it this way. He says, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and your mother and all of you who are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that, he began, that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we, can, and, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. He helps me with the picture. That place is so much more real. This is the Shadowlands. That is the picture that, that the Bible paints uh, of human existence. Uh, that's the picture that the, that the Bible paints of what it's like for you and me to exist. And I don't want to say that this, this psalm is just a metaphor pointing to that. I, I would rather say that it's a door. Metaphors sometimes have that, at least in our heads, have that backwards, right? It's an image of something concrete to explain something harder to explain. You know, like in waterfalls. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Swim in the lakes and the streams you're used to, right? That's an image, it's a metaphor. For what? For like, hey man, don't go chasing these dreams that are bad for you. Don't go chasing these things that are terrible for you. Stay where it's safe. Thank you, TLC. It's a metaphor. The waterfall is a concrete picture of something that is dangerous and slippery where you may fall on something bigger that you can't handle. It's a metaphor for the dangers that you will feel, something that's, less, something that's harder to grasp. Rather, this is not a metaphor pointing to something more concrete. It's in, instead, it's, it's reversed. It's, it's pointing to something that we know and understand to explain something even more concrete. I think this psalm is a push through that door to remind us that this and what we experience here is just the Shadowlands. Anything that happens to you here will not count against you, will not be harmful. Anything good that happens here will go through the door into eternity. But anything that's harmful, you will only look back on as something that you are grateful for. Every hurt, every tear, every struggle, every loss you will one day look back on and it will be some of the greatest things that have ever happened to your life when you see it from eternity because we are in the hands of a father who loves us like this. It will be like anything that happened here is paid back thousandfold. And of course there's gonna be struggles here. The Bible talks about it all the time. It's discipline. It's, it's how we are shaped and molded. It's in the hard times that we grow up. It's in the hard things that we become, that we become more real, more human, more like Christ. 
If you are a parent, uh, you struggle with this whole fear thing with kids probably, um, some at varying scales. Um, I'm, I'm pretty fearful, right? I'm very overly protective. I, I fight being overly protective. Um, but if you're at your best, if at your best, you... Well, parents will sometimes let their children fail. I mean, I would argue that you need to. You let them fail under certain confines that you can control, right? Like, you're not going to let them, like, you're not going to be like, yeah, like, go play in the middle of the interstate. They got to learn someday. No, like, that's not, no, you're not going to do that. But you do allow them to fail in certain, hey, you know what? We told you to, to, to get your to get your work. We told you to, to bring it with you, and you forgot it. No, I will not drive home and bring it back to you. I'm sorry, you, you, you have to learn and, and grow through this experience. And we let them struggle and we let them suffer under certain confines where we know and can be relatively certain of the outcome, right? At least we should be, yeah? That's how they learn and they grow. But the reason that we can only do that in certain, uh, a certain ways because our, our, our future, our understanding of the future, our understanding of the confines is, is so limited. God's understanding of the future is so massive and so extensive that he, anything that he brings into our life, you can be sure he knows the end is good for you. It'll send his angels to protect you. That everything that matters that's most important about you and to you the things that you love most, the things, the safety, the, the love, the affection, being seen, being known, all of the things that are most important to your actual growth will never, ever, ever be taken away from you. He is with us. He, this psalm pushes our imagination through the door to understand our life bigger. That no matter what happens, when pestilence and, 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 and crime and, and fear and, and arrow and all of these things come, you can be confident that your God is with you in them and that he will protect you ultimately. That, that, that nothing that actually matters will be taken away. That he will guard you and shape you and mold you. This is... What is true? It is true if we are born again, right? If he has brought us into this heavenly realm through Jesus, set us, set us in the heavenly realm with Christ. If we are united to him by faith. If he is returning again, it's a dangerous world. I'm not denying that. But when we are brought here by faith, we can know that this is true because, oh man, there's this amazing verse in Matthew. Jesus is going to the cross and he's looking over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He begins to weep. If you would have let me, I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother bird. It's this image from this psalm. If you would come to me, I would cover you and let the blows of the wrath of God fall on me instead of you. And because he did that, because he gathered us and protected us under his wing, we come to him by faith. We can be confident that no matter what happens, if we dwell there, not just visit there, but if we dwell, if we live, if we, our constant abiding place is in God's presence, in his word, with his people, not just where we run in times of trouble, but it is our abiding place that we can be confident that nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing will ever separate you from his provision. And everything that we go through, everything in life, every tear we shed will one day turn out to be, always have been for our great glory. So if you are suffering, if you are struggling, the promise of scripture is if you are in Christ, that it's not pointless. 
that God will use it for your ultimate glory one day. That is the promise of scripture, that your life is so much bigger than we think. And so we go to this psalm, and we read it, and we remind ourselves that this is what our God is like, that he will never let these things befall us, that he will never, ever, ever, ever let anything separate us from his love, and that he has gone to prepare a place for us, and in that place, there are no more tears. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing promise. It's too, too good to be true. It seems too good to be true, but it, it, it's, but it is. We see it in Christ's life. We see it in what has been done for us. We, we see it just constantly in all of Scripture that we were beings made to be in God's presence. And through Christ, we are seated with him, and we long for the day when the kingdom of heaven invades this earthly kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Make things new. And in the meantime, while we wait, give us the eyes to see that what's happening in the heavenly realm is that our inheritance, our well-being, all the things that are for our ultimate good and glory are being safely kept. So as we struggle, as we hurt, as loss happens, may we remember that they cannot ever touch what ultimately matters because it has been secured for us, not by our own effort, but by Christ. What an amazing gift of grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.